Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 38, we're continuing in the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to the word of God. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteousness and on the unrighteousness. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet your own, only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. <clears throat> May God bless the hearing and reading of his holy word. Let us pray. Lord, open up our hearts and our minds that through your word proclaimed, we may encounter you, the living word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I spent the first seven years of my life in West Virginia, and we didn't really live in a neighborhood per se. So it was always fun when we go visit friends or my parents' friends so that we could, I could play with other folks. It was I always look forward to that. Except this one family. For whatever reason, and I don't even remember why, this kid and I never got along. He was probably six months younger than me, but he was bigger than me. And every time we went to their house, it ended up in a fight. I can can remember one time in particular, okay, we're playing out there, my sister's three years younger than me, and he pushed my sister. And I can remember delighting in the fact that he pushed my sister because that gave me an excuse to wail on him. Okay, wasn't so much, I think, as I look back, it wasn't so much the nobility of defending my sister, but that it was an open excuse to beat on this kid. And I can still remember <laughs> his mom had a, had a deep southern accent, and uh, she would always find, you know, when she'd find this fighting, she'd come up and she'd say, boys, stop it. You need to play pretty. To this day, if you want to irritate me, tell me to play pretty, all right? <laughs> but uh, that didn't actually fix it, okay? <laughs> Telling us to be different doesn't fix it. I mean, isn't that part of, you know, even our current climate, right? You know, isn't part of the, if you would, acid, the acid nature of our environment, a little bit of a reaction to, you know, there was a season where we were kind of the social norms where we're supposed to be nice to each other, you know, if you want to call it the political correct norm or whatever. But boy, that's out the window right now, isn't it? Right. Um, America Today, to me, reminds me of that old Twilight Zone episode. Uh, you know, the great thing about the old Twilight Zone, the writing was amazing. Matter of fact, it took television 50 years to get to where we have writing as good as we did with those shows. Although, yeah, the technology was so backwards, okay? And I can still remember this one where uh, this neighborhood, it's a suburban neighborhood like our neighborhoods, and 
it's in you know it's in that middle of the uh, you know McCarthy era and the paranoia of the fifties, uh, and some of it was legitimate. I mean, we had you know you know we used to practice surviving nuclear nuclear war, right? You put your head under the desk, you'll be fine during a nuclear attack, right? Right. <laughs> So this Twilight episode, and you may have, you know, probably many of you have seen it, <clears throat> there's, it's like a summer evening, and suddenly there are selective blackouts in each house. Okay, so the neighborhood goes off, the lights go off, but suddenly there's lights on in one other house. All right. And everybody's out in the streets, and they begin wondering, well, why do they have lights and we don't? Well, the whole thing deteriorates until, you know, these nice suburbanites or a mob in the street running to, you know, burn down the house where the power is. And the, the episode um, ends with these two really funny-looking aliens. I mean, they probably use tinfoil and, a, you know, and a, a water, you know, a, a washing machine box to make their costumes. But at any rate, and they're saying, I told you we wouldn't have to use weapons to destroy them. They'll destroy themselves. Right? Something like that, right? So... <clears throat> um, the aliens watch as human paranoia and scapegoating takes over. Well, obviously, it's a brilliant commentary, not only on what was going on in some circles in the 50s, but unfortunately, it's very apropos for 2020. Now, you can blame Trump, you can blame the Democrats, you can blame Facebook, you can blame Putin, you can enumerate the sins of capitalism, you can talk about the evils of socialism, you can point out the hypocrisy of the right or the apostasy of the left. But the enemy, I think, really begins with our disdain for each other. All of the current spirit of this age seems to be in direct opposition to what Jesus clearly says. And what's particularly troubling is that this spirit of the age isn't something that's outside, but it's very much part of the Christian community in our country and beyond. Sometimes the Bible is hard to understand. Matter of fact, frequently the Bible is hard to understand. And there are some sayings of Jesus that are, are you know, full of ambiguity. Uh, matter of fact, there's a few sayings of Jesus that even borders on the esoteric. But when Jesus says we're supposed to love our enemies, I think he was trying to say that we are supposed to love our enemies. In other words, I think Jesus is pretty clear here. (laughs) In other words, there's no parable. There's no story. There's no mysticism. Jesus said we are supposed to love our enemies. And I'm pretty sure he means we are supposed to love our enemies. Now, I could close in prayer there and take up the offering, but I'm not. We're going to move on a little bit more. Because he spells it out a little bit. Turning the other cheek. Malcolm X, who I think was right about a lot of things. I think, um, I think his advice should have been followed. But maybe not in this one. <laughs> he said one time, be peaceful, be courteous, obey the law, respect everyone, 
But if someone puts his hand on you, send them to the cemetery. Now, actually, this is this is how we most of us. I mean, we not to that extreme, but in other words, most of us say we're supposed to be good citizens, right? But if you cross me or you cross my family, then you're going to pay for that. It really isn't that kind of the way. That's the way, really the way of the of the world. And I think there's a sense where we have to be realistic about. Um, about the pain that's, that are, there is in certain communities. You know, I remember being on a street corner in Chester, Pennsylvania, where a young man had been gunned down. And uh, it was in the middle of a, of a murder spree of young men killing each other. Occasionally, <clears throat> a bystander would get shot. And I remember that we were having a little service there. And, um, you know, they were, they were kind of singing praise choruses and they were talking about heaven. And a mother spoke who had lost a child. And she goes, don't talk to me about heaven right now. Because I miss my son every day. Every day I think about somebody took this boy away from me. And the only reason he died was he was at the wrong place at the wrong time. And his killer thought he was somebody else. So don't talk to me about heaven on days like this. I mean, there's real injury out there. There's people who have suffered greatly. Some of you have suffered greatly. So this idea of turning the other cheek is, it can, be almost, it can almost be a version of let's play pretty, right? Okay. It's one thing if you're, you know, a five-year-old's fighting. It's another thing if you have been deeply wronged. The trouble is, the cycle of violence doesn't end until someone quits or someone is dead. So I, I don't know if you saw, I referred to it a couple of weeks ago, the movie 1917, a great movie. And towards the end of the movie, Colonel McKenzie uh, says this, the, car- uh, um, uh, the actor says this, There's only one way this war ends. Last man standing. Well, we know that World War I did not end that way. But basically, World War I, the way it ended, set the table for even a worse war years later, right? So the cycle of violence is something that's so pervasive in our society. And, And it may not be to the point where you're punching each other, killing each other. But how many friendships have broken down? How many families have broken down? Because somewhere along the line, the cycle just got out of hand. Heidi gave a talk yesterday um, at the classes event, and she says one of her favorite lines in marriage counseling is, do you want to be right or do you want to be married? And there's a certain kind of sense to that. Jesus is trying to um, Jesus here is trying to, to break a cycle, if you would. Um, turning the other cheek is not rolling over and being taken advantage of. It's a strategy of fighting without hating. Now, this reference to if someone requires you to go a mile, you're supposed to go the extra mile. Well, a Roman soldier, it was illegal for them if they're you know marching to, to take someone and say, hey, you carry my equipment and they were required to carry it for a mile 
Okay, you could do that. You could be um, conscripted if you're just out doing your own business. Not not dissimilar from poor Simon of Serene, who's just in town and he ends up having to carry Jesus' cross. Okay, that principle, the Roman soldiers could do that. All right, and, and you can imagine how much resentment that caused, right? Right. I mean, from the time of, well, even before the time of Jesus, there have been repeated revolts leading to, you know, 30-some years after the death of Jesus, uh, the destruction of the whole city again because of a revolt against Rome. There was a lot of hate and resentment. And what Jesus here is suggesting that you may be powerless in a lot of situations in life. And we are, really, right? Okay. You don't have any control of what corporate is going to do. The zoning board can tell you you can't do what you want to do. Matter of fact, the government can take your land if it has a reason to do it. You can be conscripted. You can see things happen to your children that you have no control over. And that's real and that's painful. Injustice is a violence. But what Jesus is saying here, even if you're not powerful in terms of the world or society or economically or politically, you have the power of your own response. You don't have to return evil for evil. They may be treating you like a commodity, but you're not. I mean, just picture, okay, you're a Roman soldier, you're just a peasant, or you're just a member of an occupied country. And the Roman soldier says, you will carry my, you will carry my equipment, right? And you go a mile, and he's expecting you to stop, and you go the extra mile. Suddenly, who's in control there? There's a story of a woman who was tortured um, repeatedly for her faith uh, in the Soviet Union. And she wrote a memoir about it, and she, she went through three or four torturers. Because if you, uh, the, the rule of being a torturer is <clears throat> you either need to get the person to hate you, so therefore you, you feel justified in doing what you're doing, or you dehumanize them, right? Isn't that the history of, of oppression in this country? of injustice, we make someone else something less than. And she said as she was being tortured, she prayed, the Lord help me not to hate this person and help me not to lose my humanity. And I eventually quit torturing her because the torturers couldn't handle it because she wasn't hating. Now that's an extreme circumstance. You know, hopefully we aren't faced with that. But I think Mother Teresa in her interpretation of this passage does talk about things that we do deal with every day. Mother Teresa said, People are often unreasonable and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you're kind, people may accuse you of ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you are honest, people may cheat you. Be honest anyway. If you find happiness, people may be jealous. Be happy Anyway, the good you do today may be forgotten tomorrow. Do good anyway. Give the world the best you have, and it may never be enough. Give your best anyway. 
G.K. Chesterton one time said, the Bible tells us to love our neighbors and also to love our enemies, probably because generally they are the same people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How many wars have there been in neighborhoods over shrubbery? Okay. As a kid, I thought the War of the Roses was probably about somebody's rose garden. Just from growing up in my neighborhood. <laughs> the way people thought about their yards. <laughs> One can argue that scapegoating, hating, and making others enemies is the natural state of humans. Many have. Matter of fact, that's the central theme of the origin story of the fall of humanity in Genesis, right? Eve wants to be like God. Adam blames Eve and God for the mess, right? And their oldest son kills his brother out of envy, greed, or he's threatened by him. There's something soul-destroying, though, by causing harm to others. One of the reasons why racism continues to exist in this country is because white Christians cannot fully own the horror of what their ancestors did. Racism kind of gives you an excuse to do horrible things. You know what? And I've never known any same person who was not damaged by taking the life of another person. My great uncle never talked about World War II until he had a stroke. And he told a story that he should have gotten a medal for. Amazing bravery under fire, but he wept because he knew face to face he had killed a German. And he wept, not for the lives he protected of his own people, but for the life he had taken. Dr. Bill Earhart is an acquaintance. He was a teacher of my son's at Hafford School. If you've ever watched Ken Burns' Vietnam, he is in that. He was a young man who went to Vietnam. He is a uh, considered the uh, poet laureate of the Vietnam War. Um, and he said this. He wrote a poem. It's practically impossible to tell civilians from the Viet Cong. Nobody wears uniforms, they all talk the same language, and you couldn't understand them, even if they didn't. And he goes on, it's possibly impossible to tell civilians from Viet Cong. After a while, you quit trying. What he did in Vietnam haunted this man. It took him a long time to find peace. He almost destroyed himself from it. He also tells a story, which he says it in a poem. I heard him read the poem, where he talks about being in Vietnam, he was in the Tet Offensive, and going back there, and actually sitting down with a man who had lost, he was a member of the Viet Cong, had lost his brother, um, and he said, this man may have been shooting at me, I may have killed his brother, and he pulled out a jar, we drank, and we wept. So, there's something that happens to human beings when they harm each other, when they kill each other. When we make someone an enemy, now, and now I'm not talking about combat, 
We make someone an enemy, whether it be at work, whether it be in the neighborhood, whether it be politically, whether it be theologically, then we stop seeing them as an individual. Right? The tragedy of that poem. Right? We lump them into a category of other. And Jesus says, no, you don't get to do that if you follow me. You know, one of the things I think is most heinous about the current time, and actually you can look at all kinds of different times, is the way Christians have a capacity to turn on each other. Where even though we're one in Christ, by the death and sacrifice of Christ, sometimes it's economic divides, sometimes it's racial divides. In our current time, it's political divides. But we let these temporal things become more important than the saving work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so... This love of enemy is not this theoretical exercise. It's, it's the command of Christ. And it may be the only way we save our society by those of us who really believe what Jesus said actually trying to live it out. Jesus' command that we are to love our enemies and love as he loved are not romantic ideas. They are the signs we belong to him. In John 17, 20 through 21, I do not ask for these only, Jesus is praying to the Father, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. In other words, Jesus is saying here, the world will know you sent me by the way you are one with each other. So based on John 17, 20 through 21, it's not culture, it's not the soccer gods, it's not modernity, it's not fundamentalism that has emptied our churches. It may be the fact that the world sees the way Christians treat each other. You know what the most powerful thing about this church here is? Okay. You know what's world-changing about this congregation? Is the way you love each other. My favorite part of the week uh, is watching you all give the peace of Christ to each other. The larger church needs the peace of Christ. The world needs the peace of Christ as much as it ever has. The United States of America needs the peace of Christ. Now, whether or not they'll receive it or not, that's not really up to us, right? We're not called to be successful as Christians. We're called to be faithful. We're not called to love our enemies because that'll make our enemies nice to us, all right? <laughs> right? <laughs> right? You know, there's always a danger you turn the other cheek, you get smacked in that one too, okay? 
And thank God you only have two, right? <laughs> all right. All right. After you get smacked the second time, all right, Jesus, I'm done, right? No, we have to be realistic. But there's something powerful, you know, with this idea that by the grace of God in Christ, we can love our enemies. And what happens when you love an enemy? It's kind of hard to keep them as an enemy, right? This image of two men who were shooting at each other, trying to stay alive, coming together and weeping, is the gospel, even if they weren't recognizing the gospel. And that was not necessarily something they were doing because of their faith in Christ. They were doing that so they could heal and go forward as human beings. How much more as Christians can we do in this world, in this time? And, you know, maybe the most radical thing we can do as Christians is is do nothing. Not return evil for evil. Not have to get the final word in the argument. Say, hey, you know, I dis- we disagree about this politically. We disagree about which way the direction the church may be gone. But you know what? I love you. You're my brother. You're my sister. That's more important. Martin Luther King. Now there is a final reason I think that Jesus says love your enemies. It is this. 